1: It's Wednesday, August 12th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Robert Leonard from the Millennial Investing Podcast. But first, with today's stories,
2: Peter Cooper. Thanks, Ash. Just as many American consumers are cash strapped and are seeking ways to preserve cash, so are businesses, mom and pop shops all the way up to megacorps. Cash flow is the lifeblood of any business, and without it, it cannot endure regardless of whether the economy is in a recessionary or expansionary period. So in what ways are businesses holding on to as much cash as they can right now? The airline industry is unquestionably one of those sectors that is hurting the most, and consumers are finding that receiving a refund for trips canceled months ago is becoming increasingly difficult. According to Airlines Reporting Corp., U.S. travel agencies have already issued more than $1 billion for cash refunds, but that doesn't count for refunds issued directly by airlines. However, instead of offering cash refunds, many airlines opt for vouchers for consumers requesting a refund. And in times like this, many airlines have been changing the terms for which passengers would be eligible for refunds and vouchers, forcing many consumers to jump through hoops to receive refunds and making it virtually impossible to receive their cash back. In addition to airlines like Colombia's Avianca, Chile's LATAM, and UK's Virgin Atlantic filing for bankruptcy, others like Israel's El AV have suspended operations and froze tickets for canceled flights, indicating that passengers will be able to use them in the future. Prior to the pandemic, United Airlines offered refunds to customers who had tickets for canceled flights if no alternative flight was available within two hours. United then changed it to six hours, which would have denied refunds to possibly millions of customers. In June, they reverted back to the two-hour policy after receiving some pressure from the U.S. Transportation Department and allowed customers who were forced to accept vouchers to receive refunds. Vouchers also come with their own thorny terms. With American Airlines, vouchers grant one credit per passenger in the original purchase, meaning that for group purchases where one person pays for it, he'd only receive a credit for his own ticket and not the rest. Frontier Airlines has a 90-day expiration for its vouchers. And in this prolonged period of uncertainty and limited travel, many of those vouchers have already expired. All of this goes to show the desperation that many airlines are experiencing to save themselves from being crippled even further. Aside from these dubious methods of preserving cash, other companies, big and small, are being forced to put other costs on the chopping block. Disney's new CEO, Bob Chapek has been doing exactly that as the company pushes forward into streaming, And as some of their other businesses, such as theme parks, resorts, and cruises, are currently being pummeled. Disney had announced they'd be closing more than 20 foreign TV channels, shutting down the Broadway production of Frozen, closing down many English language schools in China, and scaled back a $1 billion resort technology project. Earlier this year, Disney had furloughed approximately 100,000 employees when the lockdown began, and last quarter, revenue fell 42%, because in addition to money drying up in parks, resorts, and cruises, advertising sales fell for networks like ESPN and ABC. While Chapic's push to move Disney's core businesses into streaming is undeniable, and therefore may have had an influence in some of these recent decisions, the pandemic is definitely a major driver in the company's effort to preserve cash. The squeeze corporations are feeling is unyielding, but companies who are able to preserve their cash flows for the remainder of this crisis and onward, whether we label their methods as dubious or not, are the ones who will survive. And with that, back to you, Ash.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's Ads. dot com.
1: Thanks, Peter. We just finished filming RVDB today with Robert Leonard, host of the Millennial Investing Podcast. I wanted to give you a little bit of a preamble here because this is different from what we usually do on RVDB. Typically, we take deep dives technically or fundamentally into markets. This episode is more about the psychology of millennial investors, which is a topic that I find really interesting because it gives us some insight into the dynamics that are driving that aspect of markets. Stick around for the second half, where we get more deeply into this topic. I think you'll find it interesting. And please, as always, in the comments, let us know what you think. Welcome, Robert. ASH thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. First time on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. First, tell us a little bit about your podcast and what you guys focus on there.
3: So on the Millennial Investing Podcast, we're focused on helping investors that are 20 to 40, roughly, investor time and money better. So, we focus on two main things, personal finance and stock investing. And it's really to help newer investors get
1: their start in stock investing. Yeah. So, as someone who watches markets very closely, what are you looking at today?
3: What I'm looking at today, and I think probably a lot of people are, is Tesla's announced five for one stock split. And I'm, helping, I'm trying to help newer investors really understand what this means and just what this market environment that we've been in for the last few months really means for the broader economy and
1: market as a whole. Well, let's start there. What's your take on the broader context of what's been happening in markets, uh, you know, for example, since March? I think there's a
3: big disconnect between the markets and the underlying economy. No one really knows as to why that's happening or you know, when it's going to change. You know, I think eventually things are going to have to come together. And I think we're going to see a reversion to some sort of mean, if you will. They may not exactly meet, but the economy is going to have to match up with the markets eventually, and I think we're going to see potentially some, some correction in the market.
1: Yeah, you know, as you were saying, uh, reversion, I'm thinking uh, that of the two, if we're going to meet in the middle, it's got to be markets that are going to have to reprice the risk and uh, the absence uh, of, uh, of uh, well, just the decline in economic activity that we've seen in the real economy uh, since, uh, since mid-March. Yeah, I don't see the real economy catching up with the prices
3: that we're seeing in the market today. So, just like you said, I think it's going to be the market that reprices itself.
1: What's your time horizon, uh, and when you think about that, what do you think the key drivers are, and what does the thesis look like in terms of the sequencing of how you expect things to unfold? I really
3: don't tend to get into the timing too too much of it because I'm a long-term Warren Buffett-style value investor at heart. So that's really how I approach the markets. I tend not to try and think of it like that, but And and I'd really try not to get political about things, but I would say that we're going to see some sort of of turning point around probably November, if I had to make a guess. And and that could be to the upside. It could be to the downside. It all really depends on the political environment and, and potentially a
1: second wave. Yeah, you know it's interesting. My uh, my often broadcasting partner Ed Harrison uh, is looking at a very similar time horizon to you, uh, and is thinking about it. I think in similar ways. You know, to uh, to touch on a point that you made earlier, um, I've spent some time listening to your podcast, and you you really are someone who takes a you know Graham Dodd type style value investment framework uh, or thesis to uh, the world of investing. So my question to you is, uh, what what's your general thought right now about value investing? versus momentum, uh, which has clearly outperformed by a pretty dramatic clip in recent years. So my philosophy has changed
3: over the years, and I'm still young, but my strategy is evolving. And I think that the original Benjamin Graham and even early days of Warren Buffett style value investing, I don't think that necessarily exists as much today as as it did back then. I just think with technology and, and markets being the way they are. And as efficient as they are, I don't think that those opportunities are as prevalent as they once were. You know, We're not getting as many net nets or, or book value plays as we could at once. So I've actually been implementing some momentum into my value strategy. So rather than attempting to catch a falling knife, we have a tool at TIP called TIP Finance. that helps us identify different momentum trends and changes for certain stocks. So I'll still go about making a pick the way I would from a Warren Buffett style approach. But then I want to look at the momentum and say, is maybe now the time to buy it?
1: Or maybe should I wait for the momentum to change a little bit? So I'm kind of combining the two. Right. What are your inputs uh, in that tool that you use to, uh, to make that analysis?
3: So I haven't really had my hand too much in the back end of the programming of it, but they use some moving
1: averages and things along those lines to get where it's trending. So it's looking at basically classical momentum plays. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so back to the broader market, I feel like I interrupted you there. What, what are your thoughts uh, on where we are and the direction that we're uh, heading and what that progress looks like?
3: I think things will turn out okay for long-term investors, but I think it's going to get dicey for newer investors. And that's really my biggest concern right now is a lot of people that connect with me and my community and on the podcast, they're newer investors. So they're either just getting into the market or they just recently entered. And so they've only experienced what we've experienced over the last couple of months and things are up. 50, 60, 70%, which I try to tell people is not normal. And so for people that are just entering now, I think the next couple months or even year, 18 months could be very difficult and very rocky. And I just don't want to see that scare people out of the markets. Whereas if you're going to hold for 10, 15 years, I don't think now is, is as big of a deal as people are, are potentially making it. I think we've seen issues like this in the past. They were always different, but we've always had issues. And you know, when you look back on a chart and you, you zoom
1: out, it's really just a blip, blip on its way up. Yeah. You know, on Revision Daily Briefing, we have a very broad cross section uh, of viewers. We have uh, some, you know, very seasoned investors who've been doing this for a very long time, and we also have newer millennial investors. I'm curious when you're talking to your target demographic, which is younger millennial investors, what do you tell them to watch for, and how do you tell them to think about this market? The biggest
3: thing that I talk to them about is their psychology and their timeline. So I ask them, "What is your expectation with this money? Do you plan on?" The first thing I say is, "When are you going to need this money?" And if they say, Oh, I'm just trying to make some trades or you know, I'm just trying to to make a quick buck, then there's probably nothing that I can help them with. And and I tell them that. I say, you know, that's not really my area of expertise. I don't necessarily invest that way. So I don't think I could really help too much. But if they say three, five, ten plus years or this is my retirement money, then I kind of dive in with them and say, now might be a good time to start dollar cost averaging. You probably don't want to dump all of your money in at current prices. You know, some would argue that we're we're Prothy right now. So I, I wouldn't necessarily dump all of my money in, but maybe start dollar cost averaging. I've had some people reach out that said they have a, a lump sum of money that they've been waiting to deploy. And I said, well, maybe set that up so that you can dollar cost average over the next two years. And then at the end of two years, you'll have exhausted all of those funds. That might be a good way. And so that's the type of thing that I'm talking to people about.
1: Yeah. So to flip it around, uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see novice investors making? And what's your advice for avoiding them? The biggest thing
3: is just making investments based on the headlines and not really understanding the business that you're investing in. I think a lot of new investors forget that you're actually owning a real business. And sometimes the hype on CNBC or just Twitter or you know, wherever you get your news source makes people forget that they're actually buying a company. You know, a lot of times they think it's just a blip on the screen. And you see from Barstool, you'll see David Portnoy and, you know, his day trading. And, and that gets a lot of attention from specifically younger and newer investors. And that kind of makes people forget about what they're actually investing for. And so I just try to remind people that these are real businesses. You need to actually focus on the results of these businesses. And things don't always go up as they have for the last three months. And then prior to that for the last essentially 10 years.
1: Yeah. Speaking of the performance of real businesses, I'm curious if you have any insights or thoughts uh, about earnings. We've obviously seen a divergence in earnings, large cap tech stocks dramatically outperforming the rest of the market. Uh, What are your thoughts about the real performance uh, in terms of earnings at at corporations? I think this is
3: really just a trend that was inevitable. I think it's something that we were going to see play out over the next three years, maybe five years, who knows, maybe 10 years. But I think we're seeing it it fast forward a lot of things. So we'll take a company that I've, I've followed pretty closely, Teladoc. You know, I think it was inevitable. And, and of course, I was long. That was my thesis for the company. So I may be slightly biased, but I think that it was inevitable that we were going to get to a telehealth type environment where more people are using that type of service rather than going into their doctor o- doctor's office. Now, no. of course, COVID-19 has accelerated that significantly. And so we're seeing, I think, a lot of, of growth in, in tech and just the way the world operates pull forward. And so I think that's the biggest thing about earnings. I'm not overly surprised with the companies that are doing well. We're seeing a lot of the companies that are struggling that we're, we're probably going to struggle. You know, Restaurants we're, were on a decline anyway. So COVID is kind of just accelerating that. So I think earnings has really just been accelerated from what we were going to see in the, the future.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting point. We've been talking about that on this show as well. The notion that this is an accelerant of existing trends uh, that have been placed for a long time. It's just pushing them faster and steeper uh, to really have a major impact in the way that we conduct business and consume uh, is as consumers and uh, and uh, as businesses. So. It's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering what you're, th- what you're thinking of uh, or what your read on that is and how you get there. So I guess the question is, uh, when, you, when you look to get a sense of earnings growth, when you look to get a sense of where corporates are going to perform, what are you looking at? What are your inputs into what you think? Right now, making those predictions
3: and forecasts are extremely difficult. Making those types of forecasts in a normal environment are, are hard. And I think doing it in this environment is is even more difficult. So you got to just think back to what things might have been three, six months ago and, and realize that what we're going through right now probably isn't going to be sustainable forever. So we're seeing some companies like Zoom and you know other companies like that have just had exponential growth. And they will probably continue to grow more than they were in the past going forward into the future. But I don't think it'll necessarily be as fast as it has been the last 3 to 6 months. So when you're when you're making your models and you're doing your analysis, just pull back that that growth number a little bit. And so that's kind of where I'm I'm investing from. I'm I'm trying to take a conservative approach. I am a value investor, but I do dabble in some of those more growthy type companies from time to time. And so that's really just where I'm approaching it, just looking for companies with strong balance sheets, high cash flow that can make it through a downturn if need be, but are also benefiting from this type of environment that we're in.
1: So talking of growth stocks, uh, although perhaps not ones with the strongest cash flow, I know you follow Tesla very closely. First of all, before we get into today's news cycle, what is your broad-based thesis on Tesla, and why does it interest you?
3: So I follow Tesla a bit. I've never been long or short the company. It's just one of those companies that I've kind of avoided You know, I I study it a bit, but I don't fully grasp everything they're doing. So I kind of classify that outside of my circle of competency, as Warren Buffett would say. But it's always just, it's so interesting and fascinating of a company to follow. So I tend to fall a bit more on the bear side, which I think a lot of people probably could assume, given I'm a Warren Buffett style value investor. You know, they're, Financials and and everything that goes into the company quantitatively just isn't aligning with the story of the company itself. So I tend to fall a bit more on the bearish side, uh, but I've never been long or short the company.
1: Yeah. yeah. So back to today's news. Uh, what are your thoughts on the split? I think the split itself
3: is fine. You know, fundamentally, it doesn't make any difference per se. What has happened as a result of the split, I think, is is a bit. Ridiculous, for lack of a better word, you know. There's there's no fundamental change in the underlying company, so there's no real re- run up, no reason for the run up. And you know, some people are going to say, well, it's more accessible for you know retail traders, and you could argue that because now it's going to be around three hundred or four hundred dollars a share rather than fifteen hundred, which it is at today, which is true. But most major platforms today offer fractional shares, so I don't think that people have had an issue of getting access to those those types of companies. Apple just did the same thing. So I don't think we're seeing that as a major issue. Now, what I do like about stock splits from time to time, and and not necessarily in the case of Tesla, but just broadly speaking about stock splits is sometimes they can make it better for some of the option strategies that I implement. So I'm not a huge options trader, but I do like to sell cash secured puts if if it's a company that I'm interested in potentially owning. And I want to lower my cost basis by collecting some of that premium. So Sometimes if a stock is too expensive, I can't I don't want my position to be that large by buying or selling puts. So if they split the stock and the stock price goes lower, I can then allocate the correct percentage of my portfolio by selling those puts. So from that perspective, I like it. But overall the the rise in the stock price because of the split, I just I don't think there's any basis for it.
1: Yeah. You know, you touched on something that was interesting, which is the notion of fractional share ownership. And I'm curious, uh, more broadly speaking, how are millennial investors uh, mechanically investing differently in these markets? Uh, and also philosophically, how are they thinking about these markets in ways that uh, older investors might be different? So tactically, what we're doing different is
3: right on our mobile phones. And and I think that's making a big difference. And I had a really interesting conversation the other day with with a guest on my show, and Matthew Pippenberg. We talked about this. I, I asked him if if this time could actually be different, or if markets could be different now because of the access that we have to the markets. In the past, if things started to crash, you didn't necessarily have as much access to the markets to start investing and start piling your money. Now, millennials, if they start seeing the market crash, they get really interested. They just open their phone and they start investing a bunch of money. So that's really the tactical thing that's different is is we have it right on our phone. We can invest quicker, faster, and at a click of a button. So that's, that's tactically what's different. Philosophically, that kind of goes back to what I was just saying about, is this time different? And I don't know if it is, but investors, a lot of new investors, specifically millennials, have only invested since the last crash. And right. so in theory, things have pretty much only gone up. So their philosophy is that the stock market always goes up. I, I got a text from a friend of mine the other day who knows I'm you know, the types of different things that I'm involved in. and And they literally said to me that the stock market is a cheat code for wealth. And I'm just like to myself, this is this is peak bubble. You know, these are the types of things that are said at, at those points. And so philosophically, I think there's a problem with the way that millennials are, are approaching it because they think it just always goes up. And we saw it obviously crash back in March, but then it just did a v-shaped recovery. And so that didn't really, Prove my point of of that markets can go down as well. So I think that's philosophically the difference, and then
1: tactically, that's also the difference. You know, this is such a fascinating conversation to me, and it's something that you are truly an expert in. Uh, it is interesting to think about how the mechanics of how you are trading uh, or investing can actually change the philosophical component uh, of the way you think about it. Uh, and I'm curious what, what what's your feeling about when markets get choppy. What are these younger investors, millennial investors uh, who are coming in from the Robin Hoods of the world going to do? Is it going to cause them to want to buy into a into a decline, or are they going to get spooked? or is it one of those things where they they buy until the the tide turns completely the opposite direction? It's such an interesting question to me. I think what we're going to see is that we're going to see smaller retail investors,
3: millennials, newer investors, things like that, continue to buy dips until, large players, hedge funds, and your institutional money pull out of the markets and really drag the market down. I think that's what's going to cause millennials to to lose their money. because. And we'll take Hertz as an example. I was talking to a guest on the show and I, I was talking about how I felt that the trade in Hertz was kind of absurd, but he said, no, no, it's it's brilliant because they knew that the the company was extremely depressed and they made a, a momentum trade essentially, and they just continued to buy. And so without technology, the way that it was in the past, I don't think millennials would make that investment, but the way that millennials are approaching it now is they see that huge decline and they're like, well, this is an opportunity without really understanding the underlying business. And in the Hertz case, it it worked out for many of them because many ended up making 80, 90% returns in the matter of days.
1: Yeah, it's dangerous. It's like your first trip to the casino—you hit the roulette wheel, and then you're addicted, and you want to keep going back. It's also interesting to me because you know it, they say that history rhymes, and um, you know when I was one of those young kids in, in my twenties, uh, we were running up uh, to the dot-com bubble, and it just feels so very similar uh, to me in the sense that um, you know in those days you weren't calling your broker; you were just entering your stock trades on E-trade, and it was revolutionary. Um, and it just felt like something different. And we were having many of the same conversations now. If anything, um, mobile platforms, especially phones and, uh, and tablets, have made just that more, even more ubiquitous, even more accessible, uh, and even simpler to invest. And I almost see it as a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to go back to the
3: Hertz example, the people that had success there, it was extremely risky, and it worked out for them but now they think that that's how it's going to be every time. So to your point about the mobile apps is when something collapses big time, say you see a stock collapse 60, 70%, those people that have had success doing that in the past, they're going to run out and do it again because they think every time it's going to be the same. And who knows if that's actually going to continue to work as a new you know, quote unquote strategy because of how many people specifically millennials are piling into that. Or if eventually they're going to enter these companies and then Although it's fallen 60% already, it can still fall 100% from there to zero, and they lose everything. So it's really going to be this interesting dynamic that we see play out over the next couple of years or even through the rest of this cycle.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I look at the Hertz chart, and it's, it's so obvious it's a dead cat bounce, right? I mean, all you need to do is pull the x-axis back and take a look at that chart over a longer than six-month time horizon. it's absolutely hideous.
3: Yeah, but investors were were successful there and now they think that they yeah. can do that over and over. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I tended to think that that was a, a bad trade. But as the guest said to me, he said, you know what, they made 80%. That's a good trade. if the, As long as they were smart enough to take the money off the table and not get greedy, then it was a smart right. trade.
1: Yeah. I mean, in a sense, uh, it's it's almost like there's nothing worse than being right for the wrong reasons, because you, you, you draw conclusions from it that probably are not the right ones. And I'm interested uh, in what you think that's going to do in terms of investor psychology uh, for the next time. It almost suggests that they're going to buy in even more vigorously looking for the rebound. That's
3: exactly what I'm concerned about, is I'm worried about the people that have done well and think that they know a thing or two now and go into it too deep and then don't have those same results again. And then they get scared off for the next 10 years. Maybe they lose everything that they have in terms of cash invested in the market. And maybe they're scared of the market and they don't want to invest for the next five, 10 years because of that. And they say, you know, the stock market's just gambling. Because you hear a lot of people say that. A lot of people that have gone through other crashes and, and started to participate towards the peak, you hear them say that. And I think that's going to be absolutely detrimental to the millennial generation because... The biggest yeah. thing that we have going for us is time you know we have compound interest working for us so if you get
1: out of the market and don't participate for the next five to ten years you're going to hurt yourself yeah that, that's extremely well said and uh and a, and a poignant insight i mean i can remember my own uh, grandparents and great grandparents uh they did not own a single share of stock all of their money went into property. They would buy real estate because that experience uh, of having the Great Depression, something that looms large in your memory, just totally and completely spooked them away from anything that looked like a paper investment. Talk to some
3: people at the end of the, mill- the millennial generation that were graduating college around 07, 08, 09. It took a long time for them to get back into the markets because they were spooked away because of
1: that. Yeah. You know, it's really it's really interesting. I'm curious what you think uh, investors who are a little bit more experienced need to know or should be thinking about um, the uh, the people on the other side of that trade. Meaning, uh, when you're investing, what what is it that matters if you're not a millennial about the millennial psychology and how you think it could affect markets and momentum? I think you need to
3: realize if you're on the other side of the trade that. Markets aren't necessarily going to f- trade on fundamentals like, like they always have like they have in the past or, or could. You know, they're trading on a lot of hype. And, and it's, it's really the best word to explain it, is, is millennials are investing in the idea of companies rather than the actual results of the company. So my brother reached out to me and asked if he should invest in Tesla. This was back at 200. And I said, "You know what? you can, if you want. That's not how I invest, but, but if you want to, go ahead and I, and he ended up not because he took my advice and you know it ran to 1500 and that didn't look so great for me but but I told him I said that's not how I invest and so but to, the other day we were talking about it and he said but the story is still there tesla is still this amazing company and I said yes but they're structurally bankrupt if you really look at the financials and I think you're going to see that a lot and and people on the other side of the trade need to remember that you know you got to be careful i think you'll see some of the more experienced investors saying well this might be an opportunity to short but you got to remember there's millennials on the other side who aren't always thinking rationally, and they could continue to just buy, 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 who I think fall victim to FOMO a lot, and that could continue the stock to rise. So just be careful. You know, I think you'll see a lot of experienced investors get excited about potential short opportunities, and, and you could potentially get buried if, if you don't understand how the millennials are going to continue to trade those types of companies.
1: Interesting. I should say I misspoke earlier when I said we were recording after market close. We typically record the show at four p.m. We were able to uh, record today uh, around three uh, for some logistical constraints. And uh, Tesla up on the day, well over twelve percent, uh, trading near fifteen forty as we speak at uh, three thirty-five. And you can still see, you could still see it run, and that's the thing is is
3: the nobody newer investor wise is looking at that company and understanding the fundamentals and. Taking that this valuation makes sense. They're looking at it and saying Tesla is the car company of the future. Elon Musk is the CEO of the future. And I believe in what he's doing. And they're continuing to buy the company, most likely due to FOMO and things of that nature. So if you're on the other side of the trade and you potentially think Tesla's overvalued, which I would argue it is, just be careful if
1: you're you're trying to bet against that trade. Yeah, you know, this is interesting because you're talking about the area where the technical meets the fundamental. And uh, one could have made a similar case uh, for Amazon in 1999, and you would have gotten absolutely pounded in that trade for a substantial number of years—not months, but years. And so, the idea uh, that you can be you can be wrong, you can be right uh, on a technical basis, uh, and wrong on a fundamental basis, or vice versa, is a really important point. And the other piece is
3: too—you might have a technical guy, you know, who's more experienced that is saying that this is the technical trend that we've seen in the past, but. I think there's also a piece of that that you need to watch out for is just because that's how it's been in the past that might not be how it is now because you don't see millennial investors saying this is the technical trend this is how I expect it to continue this is how I need to invest they're just investing based on a whim you know really or or news headlines or or things like that so it might break the technical trend that you're seeing because they're not using any you know
1: fundamental investment strategy yeah Yeah, that's very well said. You know, it's interesting. We started out talking about markets and it's become uh, almost a lesson in psychology and uh, sociology and how investors uh, of the millennial generation think about markets and how they think about investment. Final thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience with in terms of what the key takeaways here are in terms of your broad experience working with this demographic. Well, the last two things I'll say is, I like your point about the behavioral
3: finance piece of this. And and I talked to PhD psychologist, uh, Daniel Crosby about this. And he said that he doesn't think behavioral finance is going to be its own topic in the future. It's just going to be finance. And I agree with that because I don't think we can have conversations about the markets these days anymore without there being a behavioral component of it. And if you're not considering that, I don't think you're thinking about the market appropriately. So I think it's just going to become finance and there will be no distinction between the two. Now, in terms of going forward, I think what's best for all investors, whether you're new or or a little bit older, more experienced, I think we didn't talk about a ton today, but is is making sure you have your personal finances in order so that you can stick the course with investing. You don't want to invest money that you need over the next three to five months, years. You want to invest for the long term and so that you don't have to pull out of trades or or investments to cover your daily expenses. So I think that's the biggest thing. You can weather volatility you can hold your positions
1: for the long term. You just have to have that strong base. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Robert, interesting conversation about a topic I did not know much about. Thanks for joining us. Ash, thanks so much for having me.